We tend to belittle our sins, don't we? Especially if we're doing it. Other sins, they're bad. Like we might say about other ones, that's a lie. But if we said it, it was just an exaggeration. If we might say, you're lusting. But if it's us, we were just attracted. For us, it's not stealing. It's just borrowing for a really, 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 really long time. We're going to give it back, but we're, we're borrowing it. Um, interestingly enough, my mom used to loan me books, and she would write, this is loaned to Cheryl until the time of my death when it will become hers. And you're like, mom, that is such a happy thought. But she said, well, I might want it back, and I want to make sure I can still get it back from you as long as I'm living. We'll say, I'm not slandering. I'm just voicing my concerns. I'm not rebelling. I'm just disagreeing. I'm not disobeying. I'm just doing something for myself. I'm not angry. I'm just upset. When we do this, when we belittle our sin or the sins of others, we are forgetting the fact that sin is seductive, that sin is addictive, that sin is a slaving, and that every sin separates us from God and the presence of God. In Isaiah 59, 2, it says, your sin has separated you from God. Every sin puts us just that much further away from God. Sin is impoverishing, and sin is murderous. I was thinking about how sin is like gambling online. I don't know if you've ever, um, I don't think this is gambling, but solitaire. Have you ever played the Las Vegas style and realized, I'm never going to do this in Las Vegas because I would be so poor. You know, the next thing you know, you're just playing the game and you're $10,000 in debt. And you're just like, I'm not doing this. Because sin is like that. It's cumulative. It mounts a debt against you. But people are so obsessed with playing the game of sin, a game that they can never win, that they don't realize that it will end up costing them everything they own. That is the wages of sin. Because we belittle our sin, we fail to understand how great the work of Jesus on our behalf was. As long as it's just a little sin, I mean, that was nice, but did he really have to die? I mean, there are those who cause Jesus, who call Jesus' death and atonement cosmic child abuse by God, not understanding that Jesus was a warrior who took on sin and death for the Father's sake, that the Father might redeem the world, that the Father might have fellowship with his creation and no longer be separate from them. But those who call God a cosmic child abuser do not realize how bad, how evil, how wicked, how murderous, how cruel sin is. They fail to realize what a dangerous predicament we all were in. We were all going to death. We were all about to be eternally separated from a loving, good creator. We belittle our sins, and when we do, we fail to grasp that without the cross of Jesus, we would be totally lost. 
that we would perish. We fail to appreciate, appropriate, and acknowledge the greatness of Jesus' grace toward us when we belittle sin. The Hebrews to whom this epistle was addressed did not realize the great work of Jesus on their behalf. And so they were tempted to go back under the old covenant, the laws, the regulations, the rituals, the sacrifice. There is something so self-satisfying and self-securing when we feel we have earned it. I have the right to this cookie. I walked 10 miles. Or if you're with me in London, I have the right to this cupcake. I walked 11 miles. Something in me says I have to earn the right. I have to earn it. I have to merit this. As women, I think we have this complex more than any, anyone else. I don't know about you, but I feel guilty watching television, Judge Judy, if I'm not doing something. Like I'm only allowed to watch Judge Judy, Judge Judy, because it's reality. Judge Judy, if I'm folding clothes, doing ironing, making dinner, or doing the dishes, or something productive like knitting dishcloths. Now you know why I made so many dishcloths. We've got this guilt complex, like I'm not allowed just to sit and enjoy a Hallmark movie. I've got to work for it. I've got to earn it. I've got to do something while I, I'm doing this. I, I had a friend, she had one of these bicycle things that you just do with your feet. And that was the only way she could justify like watching a movie is if she was bicycling the whole time, you know, like, okay, it's all right. I burned, you know, 12 calories. I'm all right. But that's what the Hebrews thought. They thought faith in Jesus just seemed too simple, too good. No, 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 no. I, they felt that they had to merit it. Like us, these Hebrews failed to recognize how far their sin had taken them from God. They thought they could actually atone, that they could actually buy a ritual or buy a sacrifice or buy a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, earn their forgiveness. They failed to realize the holiness, the great holiness of God, how he is absolutely righteous. He is absolutely pure. He is absolutely good. This morning I was reading in Isaiah 34 in my personal devotions, and it was saying, who can stand before the everlasting fire? Who can be in the presence of an all-consuming God? And then it answered, only one who is absolutely righteous. And it went on to talk about the qualities of righteousness. And it was saying, who's never had a bad thought? Who's never done a bad deed? Who's never spoken a bad word or a maligning word? That disqualified me like that. I need Jesus. I need Jesus. But these Hebrews failed to realize the holiness of God. They failed to understand the ineffectiveness of the first covenant that the law had no power to save. And we've been over this week after week. But even the Hebrews needed the repetition because they were so ingrained in this idea of self-atonement, of meriting. 
And they had to be reminded again and again that the law could not save them. Even if they could keep the law, it couldn't save them. It could only tell them what they did wrong. The tabernacle was only a copy of the real. It wasn't the authentic real place. It was an earthly copy of a heavenly reality. The furnishings were symbolic, not magical. The rituals were foreshadowing the real work that the Messiah would do. And the sacrifices could only cover or kippur sin, but not remove or cleanse the conscience from it. It was outward, but not inward. It covered, but did not transform. In Hebrews 9, verses 1 through 15, the author continues in his commitment to show his readers the superiority of what Christ has accomplished. He reminded his readers of the ordinances of divine services or rituals and the, in the earthly sanctuary where they were performed. He told his readers that the earthly tabernacle or temple contained two rooms, only two rooms. There was first the holy place, So if you walked in the tabernacle, which you'd never be able to do, because one, you're a woman. Two, you're not a Levite. It was restricted to just the Levites. And only one family of the Levites, not the the, uh, Korites, not the Merites, but only those of of the lineage of um, Aaron and Moses. So in the holy place, The first room, there would be a lampstand and a table with 12 loaves of showbread, which was refreshed every day. Every day, fresh bread was put there. But in the most holy place, the second room, there would be a golden censer or altar of incense. And this altar of incense was, it was actually in the holy room, not the holy of holies, but in the holy place. But it was right in front of the curtain. But on one day a year, that curtain would then come around and also enclose the altar of incense when the priest went in. But we'll talk about that in just a second. There was a thick curtain that was between the first room and the second room. Some say that this curtain was 18 inches thick. Um, what it actually was, we don't know, but that's what it was, uh, the rabbis and the uh, Pharisees wrote, a thick curtain separated it from the holy place, which, and inside the most holy place, there was the Ark of the Covenant, which was overlaid in gold. It had two seraphims that were over it, whose wings touched. And inside the Ark was a golden pot of manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the stone tablets with the Ten Commandments. The lid on the ark was called the mercy seat. And it was to replicate the throne of God. It was like an earthly replication. It was all done in gold of the throne of God where he sat. And these were the emblems inside the ark of his mercy, of his covenant with Israel. And part of his covenant was the priesthood, the provision, the divine provision, and the authority, the way um, he chose what to be and the law. 
Now, this incense altar represented where the prayers were received. In Revelation 8, we're told that there's a heavenly altar of incense. And that prayers are brought by the angels, mixed with the elements of heaven, then placed on this altar where the smoke ascends to God's throne. And as the smoke ascends and the prayers are purified by the fire in heaven, the angels fill their censers and they send the purified prayers back down to earth as thunderings, lightnings, and earthquakes. The table with the showbread was symbolic of God's provision and God's mercy to Israel. Every day there would be 12 new unleavened loaves of bread on the table of showbread. And then the lampstand represented God's spirit and God's light to Israel. Once these were prepared, the divine service of the high priest could take place once a year on the 10th day of the seventh month, or it's called Yom Kippur. And it's considered by the Israelites, even still today, the holiest day of all. Kippur, Yom Kippur, means the day of covering. Kippur means to cover. It's also called the day of atonement. On that day, the high priest would bathe from head to foot, and he would put on the holy linen garments, not his, not his noble garments, not the, one, not the breastplate with all the jewels on it that represented the tribes of Israel or with the onyx stones on his shoulder. No, he was just in plain linen garments. He had the linen undergarments, linen coverings, linen sash, and the linen turban, which did say holiness to the Lord. He would take one young bull and one ram, and he would sacrifice them on the bronze altar in the court of the temple or the court of the tabernacle. And then he would take, uh, he would collect the blood, and then he would take a second young bull and a second ram, and he would sacrifice those also on the bronze altar. The first sacrifice and the blood that was collected was for his sins. The second sacrifice, that the blood that was collected, was for the sins of Israel. The priest would then take two handfuls of incense and live coals and place them on the altar of incense before entering the Holy of Holies. And the smoke would fill the chamber of the Holy of Holies. He would then enter once the smoke was covering the Ark of the Covenant so he couldn't even see it. And he would dip his finger seven times into the blood that had been collected and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat, on the Ark of the Covenant. And it was symbolic of purifying the earthly tabernacle or the temple because it had to be purified yearly because of the sins of the people. It also atoned for the priest's sins or covered the priest's sins and covered for the nation's sins. It was a covering. It just made things even. It was not an absolute covering. Other sacrifices would follow. Daily sacrifices, 
burnt sacrifices, sin sacrifices, fellowship and peace offerings, grain offerings, and guilt offerings would still need to be offered the following day. Then the priest would come out of the Holy of Holies, out of the holy place, and come out to the door of the tabernacle or the door of the temple. And he would be presented with two goats. And the one goat, they would cast lots, and the one goat that was considered the Lord's goat would be slain. And the other goat, the priest and the other priests would gather around and they would confess all the sins of Israel upon the one goat. And the goat that had all the sins confessed over it was allowed to go free when the other goat was sacrificed. So the God's goat died for the sinful goat to go free. That's where we get our term scapegoat from the goat that was allowed to escape. It was actually Tyndale who translated the Bible into English from um, Hebrew and from Greek who came up with a term like, what do I call this goat? The scapegoat. The author of Hebrews tells us in verse 8 that the Holy Spirit by this was indicating that the way to the holiest of all was not yet made manifest or available while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was showing that access was restricted, the place was restricted, the time was restricted, the ritual was restricted, the clothing was restricted, the sacrifice was restricted, and the results were restricted. It did not make God accessible to man. There was still going to be priests and still going to be rituals and still going to be sacrifices. It also showed the ineffectiveness of the ritual and the limitations of the tabernacle, verses 9 through 10. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect. This couldn't even perfect the high priest. How much less the people that he was atoning for. And the reason it couldn't is because it was concerned only with outward reformations, only with outward signs, foods and drinks and various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation, until the time of real change. These were just prohibitions. These were just rituals. These were just going through it by rote, but not by heart. But reformation would change the heart. The old system was preparatory. It was meant to show men their sinfulness and the heavy toll of sin, the greatness of God's unattainable holiness, and the need for a savior, a mediator, and a thorough cleansing. In verses 11 through 15 of Hebrews chapter 9, we see the superior work of the Messiah. I I want, again, to draw your attention to the fact that the writer of Hebrews uses the word Christ 
more than he does Jesus because he wants to remind his readers that the one who has done this, who has made a way, is not just any man, but the Messiah promised by God. He is pointing to the fact that Jesus is the one and only Messiah, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament rituals and regulations. He is the priest king. He is the completion for which everything was preparatory, foreshadowing, symbolizing, and a copy of. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, I did not come to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill it. The law had its fulfillment in Jesus. Paul tells us in Galatians, it was just a schoolmaster, a tutor, till that which was perfect could come. It was preparatory, getting the people ready for Jesus. See, this is how sinful you are. This is the toll your sin extracts. It was foreshadowing by the bread, the lampstand, a greater work that Jesus would accomplish. It was a copy of what would happen in heaven. Jesus is the high priest of good things to come, greater promises, greater blessings than the law could ever bring. Again, the law could make you, the, the law could cover, but just for a short time. But with Jesus, we get more than just covering. We get reconciliation with God the Father. We get fellowship with God the Father. We get the presence of God the Father. We get the favor or grace of God, and we get the blessings of God. And we are allowed to be participants in what God is doing. Jesus went to the greater tabernacle. He went to the actual throne room of God. I was reading because my personal devotions are in Hebrew, sorry, in Isaiah. So I was in Isaiah chapter six and I was working on this lesson and I was praying. And before I started the lesson, I was in Isaiah chapter six and there Isaiah sees the throne of God. And God is so holy that all Isaiah can see is that the smoke fills the room as well as the train of the Lord's robe. In those days, the longer a king's train was, the more important he was, the more dignified he was. And Isaiah said, the Lord's train of his robe is so long, so great, that it fills up the whole temple. And then he said, and the earth quakes with his glory. And Isaiah saw these winged creatures that he called seraphim, and, it, and he said that they had six wings, and with two they covered their eyes, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And they never ceased day or night to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Now, it's, it's very telling that even the seraphim could not look on the throne of God. He is that holy the seraphim had to cover their feet because they were on holy ground. And it's this holy, holy, holy place that only Jesus could go. And he didn't go with the blood of rams and goats. And he didn't have to make a sacrifice first for his own sins because he had no sin. 
but he went with his own precious blood to this very holy place that no other man could tread. He went where no man could go with his own blood and he brought it before the very throne of God. And with it, this holy, precious, perfect blood, he purchased our redemption. He didn't just cover our sins. He removed our sins. He didn't just give us a list of laws, but with this precious blood, he went in to our very consciousness, our thought life, into our very hearts, the way we live and think and, and the source of all that we do and all that we feel and brought a thorough cleansing, a thorough transformation. Jesus provided a better sacrifice. He did not enter time after time or once a year. His person, his procedure, the place he went with his perfect blood purchased our eternal redemption forever and ever and ever and ever. One sacrifice. One sacrifice. I think all of us should have said hallelujah. One sacrifice forever. My dad used to love to sing once for all, oh sinner, believe it. Once for all, oh sinner, receive it. Cling to the cross, the burden will fall. Christ has redeemed us once for all. That's how powerful Jesus is. That's how great the blood of Jesus is. You can't earn that. You can't merit that. You can't get close to the blood of Jesus Christ. He paid it all. The author then gives an argument that's called from the less to the greater. And he says that if the blood and of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on someone could offer an external purification because he's talking about the priest. The priest had to be ordained with the ashes of a heifer. He had to offer the blood of bulls and goats for his own sin so that he could act on behalf of others. So he could be purified for service for others. He says, how much more? How much more the blood of the Messiah who through his eternal spirit, without spot, never sinned, and taken to God, the throne of God, the absolute highest throne, and the highest Lord of glory, is able to cleanse our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. It works internally. It cleanses, it removes guilt, and it sanctifies us or qualifies us to serve the living God. It makes us priests to our God. Women are now priests to God. 
There is neither Jew nor Greek, barbarian or free, male nor female, but Christ is all and in all. This is what Jesus has done. What was restricted to us, he has now made a way and cleansed us thoroughly. And so the author of the, to the Hebrews says, don't look back to the law. The law couldn't do that. The sacrifices couldn't do that. The priests couldn't do that. They could not make a way to God. They could not make a way to the throne room where even the seraphim had to cover their eyes and couldn't look. Where the smoke had to fill the temple of heaven because of the glory of God. Now this is available because of how great Jesus is. Because of how great his blood is. Because of the greatness of the person. The greatness of the place. The greatness of the procedure. That is why we can have absolute confidence in the covenant that Jesus has mediated. He is the pure priest with the perfect procedure who has provided propitiation at the very throne room of God. He died that all transgressions might be forgiven, all sinners might be redeemed, that all who believe by faith might receive all the promises of God as an eternal inheritance. What was once impossible, what was once absolutely prohibited, Jesus has done for us by his person, his procedure, his propitiation before the throne of God. It is a greater covenant whereby we can enter boldly into the very throne room where the seraphim constantly without ceasing praise the one on the throne. We, the disqualified, have been qualified. We have been forgiven. We have been cleansed thoroughly. And we have been qualified for service to the living God. When the devil comes to condemn you, when you feel that you have to atone for your sins, either by apologizing to everybody you know, or by fasting, by extra prayer. We have all sorts of strange ways that we try to atone for our own sins. We, the church, even try to go back to rituals. We, the church, I have to read the old King James, and then I'll be purified. We, the church, have rituals by which we try to atone for our own sins. I'll never forget, it was one of, I think it was like the second time I'd ever spoken on a Friday morning after I moved back from England. And I got up and I was speaking on love. And during the course of speaking on love, I happened to mention a movie I went to. And then I remembered I was not supposed to talk about movies from the, from the platform. And I had already said it. And so then I w- I, all I wanted to say was that the person behind me told me to shut up because I talked out loud during the movie. But 
being the person of details that I am, I felt like I had to give all the details. And during the course of speaking on love, I said, I hate a certain actor. And I'm speaking on love. And then I tried to qualify it. And you know, I dug a hole so deep that only the blood of Jesus could pull me out. And I, I could feel the sympathies of everyone out there and the condemnation of what I had just done. And so my mom was getting back from Israel. I re- remember I ran up to her room. Brian and I were waiting there. Brian had to, you know, tell my dad something. And I had to tell my mom what had happened at Joyful Life. And she said, oh, my, oh, my, oh, oh, my, oh, oh. Because I told her the whole thing, you know, oh, 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 Sherry. Because that's what she called me. Don't you try it. Oh, Sherry, 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 Sherry. Here's the truth. My mom wanted me to be named Sherry Kay. My father named me Cheryl Lynn. He did the birth certificate while she was still recovering. And when she realized he had named me Cheryl Lynn, she decided to call me Sherry Kay for the rest of my life, even though, and her name was Catherine with a C, even though she went by Kay. So you see, she did things like that. So she was like, oh, Sherry, Sherry, Sherry Kay, Sherry, Sherry, Sherry. And I I felt kind of good about that because she's talking to somebody else. But (laughs) I remember just, you know, I remember she got up the next Friday and said, no, Sherry did a terrible thing in talking on love, but she's my daughter and I love her and she loves Jesus. You know, I was just like, precious mom apologizing for me. Like I was just hoping everyone would forget. But I remember I, I was telling everybody, oh, you wouldn't believe how I blew it this Friday, last Friday. And were you there? And they'd say, no. So then I'd tell them the whole story. And... I needed them to say, the Lord forgives you. But sometimes they'd just be like, oh, ooh, ooh, ooh. And, and then there was this young man, and of course he didn't come to the women's study, but I said, you're not going to believe what I did. And so I start telling him. And he looked at me and he said, Cheryl, are you trying to atone for what you did? And oh my goodness, I was. I thought if I told enough people, and I got enough really negative reactions that maybe the fact that I confessed it so much would help God to forgive me. Well, look at her. <laughs> look at that pitiful thing she keeps confessing. And he looked at me and he said, Cheryl, the blood of Jesus Christ already forgave you. Why are you telling me? I'm not a woman. I wasn't there. <laughs> I was so struck by that. A little bit later in the evening, I was praying, and the Lord gave me this vision. And the vision was me going to my trash can, trying to find a Father's Day gift for my dad. And I'm rummaging through the trash can, trying to find something worthy to give my dad for Father's Day. And the Lord said to me, Cheryl, that's you, trying to present something to me that can atone for your sins. I already paid it through Jesus Christ. You either receive my forgiveness or you live in absolute frustration. I'm saying this because I believe some of you, although you're not going back to those rituals, 
because there's no temple to go back. But the Jews today on Yom Kippur, they fast and they compare all their good works to their bad works. On the day before and the weeks before Yom Kippur, they get really good. Best time to visit Israel, October. That's what my dad used to say because they're trying to get all their good works in to exceed their bad works because they think that's how they'll be forgiven. But the Bible says without the remission of sin, without, sorry, without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can forgive us. What are you trusting in? What ritual are you doing to try to earn your forgiveness? Oh, dear sister, you have been forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. You are free. And whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Your sin was worse than you thought. It was like that garbage can that they come and pick up every Thursday in Costa Mesa. It had a stench. And there was nothing in you that could possibly measure up to the holiness that God is. So Jesus came and shed his own blood because there was no other way that we could be saved. No ritual could do it. No law could do it. Paul said in Galatians, if there was a law that could bring forgiveness, God would have brought forgiveness through the law. But there was no law that we could keep. There was no law that was powerful enough to forgive our sins and put us in a right stead with God. We were absolutely disqualified, but the blood of Jesus Christ has qualified us so that no one has the right to call what God has cleansed common or unclean. We are qualified for service by the blood of Jesus Christ, and there is no greater qualification than that. No greater qualification Your good works cannot qualify you. Your abstinence from drinking cannot qualify you. The type of Bible or how many chapters you read cannot qualify you. Hours of prayer cannot qualify you. Now, I'm not saying go drink, don't read your Bible, don't pray. I'm saying that we choose to do those things because we are forgiven. We read because we're forgiven and we have a love relationship with God. We pray because it's a delight to go into the throne room of the Holy of Holies and receive grace and mercy at the throne of God. We do these things because we are forgiven, but we do not do these things to receive forgiveness or to cover our sins. We do it because we are forgiven, because our sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. We do it because we're loved, because we're qualified for service. That's why we do it, because the perfect priest came with the perfect blood and took it to the perfect place and by the perfect procedure has cleansed our consciousness has cleansed us internally and eternally forever by his blood. What a covenant. 
To truly receive it and embrace it and appreciate it, you must understand, one, the terrible penalty of your sins. They are worse and were worse than you ever thought of them. You must understand the great holiness of God, that he is so high, so glorious. He is like a consuming fire that even the seraphim could not look upon him. That you must understand the huge chasm that lay between God and man. And you must understand the great, powerful, effective, availing, precious work of Jesus, our Messiah. Today, because of Jesus, we can call God Father. Because of Jesus, we have a relationship with God. Because of Jesus, we can go into the very presence of God with whatever need, with whatever request, with whatever deficiency, and we can receive whatever we need, whatever we need, because of Jesus. Because of Jesus, we are cleansed, we are qualified, we are dressed in his righteousness because of of Jesus. There is no better sacrifice than his. There is no better ritual than the ritual that he already undertook. There is nothing. You can't touch this. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you for Jesus. Lord, we need to understand that it is finished that it is paid in full, that the doors are thrown open to us because of Jesus. While every eye is closed, I just want to say, maybe you're one of those who you're saying, Cheryl, that's me. I've been trying to atone for my own sin. I've been trying by ritual and all these different ways, and I've been feeling the weight of it that it's just not working. If that's you, would you raise your hand? Because I, I want you to be free. Yeah, you need to. Oh, dear sisters, I know that feeling. Lord, I pray for my sisters. I pray right now in Jesus' name that they will see that it's your sacrifice. You are great enough. Yours was enough, and they can't add one iota to it. It's paid in full. Take the weight. Take the burden away. Remove the rituals. Remove the wrong thoughts. And, Lord, show them, Calvary, that the cross is great enough, powerful enough, strong enough. What you've done, Lord, let them look to you and know it is finished. It is done. They are forgiven. They are clothed in your righteousness, not because of anything that they have done, but because of what you have done. Oh, Lord, let us look to Calvary and be saved. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.